Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. In the fall of 1969, 50-year-old school custodian Ernest Huckleby heard from several of his friends at a granary in New Mexico, about 200 miles from where he was living, was giving away floor sweepings. So Ernest, he drove to the granary, got about 3,000 pounds of millet seed. Then he fed the seed to the 17 pigs he was raising. And after three weeks of feeding the seed to his hogs, Ernest noticed that a dozen of them were starting to show some signs of being sick. They appeared to have what farmers called the blind staggers. Ernest picked the biggest one of the hogs, because that is totally what you do. He picked the biggest hog that did not appear to be sick. He butchered it for his family, and they put it in their freezer, and they began to eat it for their meals. And after eating this meal for months, on December the 4th of that year, in 1969, their daughter Ernestine took sick. Now keep in mind, this was a very, very large family. Ernest and his wife had eight children, and his wife was three months pregnant at the time. Ernestine was the first one sick, but she was not alone. Within three months, the children developed ataxia, which is a degenerative disease of the nervous system. The children were noticeably agitated, visually impaired, and had troubles with their mental abilities. When the baby was born, Michael was severely neurologically impaired, blind, and had convulsive seizures, and only a little bit aware of his environment. Ernestine, at eight years old, this is a picture of her from National Geographic when they covered their story. Ernestine suffered greatly. She became blind, unable to sit, unable to roll over, unable to hold objects, unable to control bodily functions, unable to speak. She was in a coma for more than a year, but her mental capacity was so diminished that it's unclear if she ever understood what actually happened to her. She lived as a quadriplegic and severely handicapped until she died at age 30. Amos, 13 years old, became functionally blind and had diminished coordination. Dorothy Jean suffered from tunnel vision, slurred speech, diminished coordination, numbness, and tingling in her extremities. Parents were unaffected. Four of the eight children were unaffected, but something was making the rest of these children sick. Well, doctors were stumped at first. If you've ever spent much time around them, sometimes they get stumped. But what they discovered with time was that this waste grain that Ernest fed to the hogs, it had been marked with a warning, dyed pink for a reason. But it was a warning that Ernest didn't understand. This grain and these seeds had been treated with a fungicide that contained methyl mercury, which is extremely dangerous to the nervous systems of infants and children when they are developing. Because in heavy metals like lead, or mercury, they don't pass through your digestive system right away. They stay in the body for a long time. And then in tiny doses, in tiny, tiny doses, the effects are minimal, but over time, the effects become horrible. 
Now, this describes exactly, Christians, what happens to many of us. Because every day of our lives, we ingest small amounts of conflict, small amounts of disrespect. No big deal, we think to ourselves. We shake it off. We try to shake it off, but we really don't. Instead, it gets buried inside of us. And then one day we're driving down KGB or any other road in the valley and we go ballistic on someone. And we wonder, where did that come from? It's a sickness because we've been poisoned. I'm here with a warning this morning, and it's a warning that I hope you understand. It's a warning I hope you take to heart. Because the sin of this world is poisoning us. And it directly impacts how we fellowship here as a body of believers in this church. This morning, our study is on church conflict, and here is how we're going to cover it. It's a little different than normal, but here's how we're going to do it. In the first half of our study, I'm going to speed walk, and I mean, it is going to be a speed walk. We're going to move through Ephesians 4 fast because it lays down some fundamental principles for church conflict. And then in the second half of the message, I'm going to give you straight up application after application after application of how to resolve church conflict. We start, hold on, here we go, in Ephesians chapter 4 with verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. We don't have the time for a detailed exegesis this morning, but to keep it simple, Paul is telling us that we shouldn't be living like the old man, the old person that we were before Jesus Christ. He's going to tell us in a minute because there is a poison out there in the world. It's hatred, it's selfishness, it's envy, it's jealousy. It's all of that boiled into one. And this is becoming a poison within the church of Jesus Christ today. Paul describes our old way of life as futility of mind, spiritually darkened, alienated from God, ignorant of the things of God, heart of heart or blindness of the heart, past feeling, callous given to impurity and greed. And Paul tells us then in verse 20, he says, but you have not so learned in Christ. And then skip down to verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. See, if you want to understand church conflict, if you want to understand any conflict with other believers, this is a foundational truth. Now, one of the reasons, Christians, we are so adamant about Christians here understanding our identity in Christ and the positional truth we have in the family of God is because if you don't understand what I'm talking about with this, you're going to have a hard, hard time understanding much of the New Testament. The number one main source of conflict in the church is our old man, our old sin nature, our flesh. Number one cause. It's still a part of us until we receive those glorified bodies. There should be, key words, should be, should be a distinct difference between how we used to live as unbelievers and how we live as believers. Should be. Now this has nothing to do with keeping your salvation. 
And this has nothing to do with persevering in good works to show that you truly belong to God. Both of those are false teachings which rob the believer of assurance in Jesus Christ. The biggest problem in the church today is the sin nature of believers. If you want to be a part of solving conflict, learn to put off the old man and put on the new man. Created according to God, true in righteousness and holiness. Walk in submission to the spirit. Walk in submission to God's word. It is your responsibility as a Christian to the body of Jesus Christ. James 4, 1, what a text. Where do wars and fights come from among you? He's not talking about Putin or some foreign army. He's talking about the church. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Each of us in this room has a responsibility to protect the church, to be on guard. It starts with you and it starts with me. Every single person here. Avoid the slander. Avoid the backbiting. Avoid the distrust of one another. Watch out for jealousy. Honor those who serve instead of griping about how you think it should be done from the bleacher seats. These things do not come from God. And they can kick up a dust storm that's unimaginable in any church. So what is James driving at in James 4.1? Well, he knew that conflicts, that fighting in the church, it really is not the root issue. It's not the root issue in in a church. Something deeper was going on. And James is challenging them as believers to think about the reason for these church battles. Now, war here is a very literal translation. That's what it should be translated, war. There were battles taking place, but notice wars, plural, fights, plural, plural, lots of fights going on. Certainly wasn't about doctrine. This is a bunch of believers living for self instead of living to be servants of God. See, the tendency of man is to blame others. Blame others for what they did to you. But the real battle starts within, doesn't it? Every single time it starts within. It starts in the heart of man. The conflicts that we have with others and our attitude towards others starts within, within our members, meaning within us. And James was saying that craving to live for yourself, that fleshly desire to live for yourself, it comes from within you. The desire within to satisfy themselves was really at the heart of the problem. The sin nature means that within us, there is a strong desire to do what we want instead of what God wants. And when we do, when we do that, it's going to mean conflicts. See, Paul is telling us back in Ephesians, very important truth. When the new birth took place, a radical change took place. You became a new person in Christ. The power of the old man was broken. You don't have to give in to that sin nature. The power of the old man is broken in our position in Jesus Christ. See, when you got saved, you took off the dirty clothes of the old man and put on the new clean clothes of the new man in Christ. And as your mind is being renewed to be conformed to God's word, your behavior, your condition, how you live, your condition can also change you to conform to Jesus Christ. But you still need to die to self. As Paul said in Romans six eleven. he said, likewise, you also reckon yourselves Consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, as you learn to believe what God says about you in Jesus Christ, as you learn to believe what the word of God says to you, as you renew your mind in the word of God, then you learn as a Christian to act on it. 
to obey it, to believe and trust and live and obey the Bible. Trust me when I say this will improve your relationships because selfish living is the main cause for conflicts. Second, put off the behavior of the new man, verse 25 in Ephesians, where Paul says, therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul is directing this command at the relationships we have in the church. Notice we are members of one another. So I want to tell you guys, let this be a place of truth. Let this be a place of truth. I catch people lying to me all the time. It drives me nuts. I wonder how much you guys lied to each other. Let this be a place of truth here. Let our relationships with one another be governed by truth. Because without it, we're never going to be the type of church that God intends for us in Jesus Christ. Speak truth. Then you only got to remember that. One of the things that makes this church special is that we don't try to play church because I'm telling you in most churches on Sunday morning, it is the most dishonest hour of the week. Now this does not mean you have to be harsh with people. It doesn't mean you got to be harsh and overly blunt. It doesn't mean we look to offend because Proverbs 15 one still stands that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's a way to put things that can keep the peace. You don't have to be overly blunt. Ask God to help you with this, Christian, because most people can tell when you're lying. I mean, everybody, when I see people lying, they think they're getting away with something and you're like, so obvious they're lying. Or most people can tell when you're just being blunt and disrespectful. I don't like confrontation. In fact, it's one of the least favorite things about my job. Nobody likes confrontation. Hey, I got a good idea tomorrow. Let's go down and have a confrontation with somebody. Nobody likes that. But you can't avoid these things and you can't fail to speak the truth. It's not helping anyone. As Paul says back in verse 15 in Ephesians that we are to speak the truth in love. That's when the body of Christ is going to be healthy when we speak the truth in love. Now, Trust me when I say this, Angie's glad for this next statement. I am not saying share every thought going through your head. (laughs) I'm not saying that because you would be scared, very, very scared what goes through my head in a given day. Trust me. But here's a, a, a general rule. Ask yourself this, whether a problem is damaging your relationship. If you're avoiding talking about something that is hurting your relationship with another because then that's not speaking the truth, is it? If it's hurting your relationship, you need to speak the truth. But neither is saying that you're going to be brutally honest with somebody, and then you just start blasting them, just coming at them, just blasting people, because that's how you feel. That's not speaking truth in love. Verse 26 in Ephesians. Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Be angry. Now, these are words that you might not expect from Paul. Start here by recognizing that righteous anger is Christ-like. Christ in Mark 3, 5 was angry. Why was Christ angry? Because of the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees. But there's something worse in the Bible than anger in relationships. And most people don't suspect this. There is something worse than anger in relationships. And it's actually indifference. 
See, if you care about someone and that person repeatedly sins over and over, their sin should make you angry. Indifference to that sin shows that you're not showing love. Paul is quoting Psalm 4.4 to tell us to have enough anger, righteous anger, when you see habitual, nonstop sin, but don't let it boil over to sinful anger. And don't let it fester for days on end. Don't let it continue. Deal with it and then put it aside so you don't let the devil get a foothold in your life. If I'm angry because I didn't get my way on something, then I'm in sin with my anger. Isn't that true? Then I'm in sin. If you're blowing up in anger, that's sinful. Be slow to anger, James 1.19, because God is slow to anger. But anger that does not confront a problem, anger that goes into a slow burn in your life that turns into bitterness is like the poison pig, and it's sinful. Because it's acting on behalf of self, not for the purpose of seeking love and reconciliation. Righteous anger is motivated by the knowledge that sin damages people. Sin damages people. The motivation is the restoration of the, of the sinner and the desire for God himself to be glorified. It attacks the, the problem, not the person. So be careful, Christians, with your anger. And then Paul tells us in verses 28 and 29, he says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Two principles I'd like to highlight here. In verse 28, he's teaching about the need for Christians to be honest, hardworking people who are focused on giving, not taking. Because the old man is motivated by selfishness, what he can get for himself. But the new man is not lazy. He's not self-centered. And then look at verse 29. Verse 29 is a game changer. The new man replaces destructive speech with constructive speech. Destructive words do not resolve conflicts in the body of Christ. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Meaning you can, you can use your tongue to wound other people. You can use your tongue to hurt other people. Or you can use your tongue to deal with problems carefully and bring healing. So what is the corrupt words that Paul has in mind in Ephesians? Well, things like name-calling, ridicule, gossip, slander, blaming, destructive criticism, angry words of threat or revenge, complaining, lying, filthy talk, dirty language. Make your focus on imparting grace. Do you come to church like that? Do you see your other believers in Christ like that, where you're going to go and impart grace, build each other up, not because the other person deserves it, but because our God himself is gracious. If your tongue is a problem, I want to encourage you to memorize Ephesians 4.29. Let God renew your mind. And then we read in verses 31 and 32, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, notice, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Paul is describing the sinful, selfish behavior, and he's coming at it from slightly different angles that must be put off if we want healthy relationships in the body of Christ. All these actions of the old man 
They hurt our relationships. They're motivated by self and the opposite of love. Keep short accounts of other people. Forgive other people, even if they never ask for it. Allow people to have a bad day. If we put on the new man, if we live according to Christ has made us to be, this place could be a place of Christian love and fellowship united in Christ. Now, I skipped a verse on purpose. Go back to verse 30, where it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It is significant that in the middle of the passage on dealing with relationships, Paul mentions grieving the Holy Spirit of God. All this sin that Paul mentions grieves the Spirit of God. Do we think about that? This sin grieves God. And this means that our motive here as Christians for wanting a healthy church family is not just so that we can get along, not just so that we can go to church on Sunday morning without wanting to kill the people in the row ahead of us. It's so that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now at salvation, he sealed us for eternal life. And you need to understand here in this verse that the spirit himself is the seal. That is important. The Spirit Himself is the seal, God's personal mark of ownership. That's why you can never lose your salvation. This means if you want to have good relationships with other Christians, you need to work on your relationship with God. Now, let me be clear about what we're talking about. I want to make sure you understand I am not talking about getting along at the expense of doctrine. Like this man. Peter James Lee. He was a bishop in the Episcopalian Church, and he was one of their 60 bishops who voted to approve the appointment of Gene Robinson. Gene Robinson was an openly gay man, and he voted to approve him as Bishop of New Hampshire. And at the time, Lee made this statement. He said, quote, If you must make a choice between heresy and schism or division, always choose heresy. Go long to get along. At that time, that's what he said. And he died with that position. But at least he was honest, right? At least he was honest. Doctrine can divide. Doctrine can unite. I believe we are more united here than most churches on doctrine. If you don't think doctrine matters, then think about this. What's the difference between a Jehovah's Witness or any other person in a works-based group who's trying to earn or work his way into heaven but is actually headed to hell and you, believer in Jesus Christ? What's the difference? The difference is theological. The difference is doctrine. See, every Jehovah's Witness I've ever talked to claims to believe in Jesus. Most people claim to believe in Jesus, but the problem is the Jesus they believe in is not the Jesus of the Bible. Unity does not come at the expense of doctrine. But how do you know, Christian, when you should separate from other churches? How do you know when it should separate you? How do you know if the doctrinal differences mean it's time to pack up and go? Well, when I look at Scripture, here's how I see it. I see that the apostles handled doctrinal error, and I see three categories of doctrinal differences. So if life takes you in a different direction and you find yourself later in life in a different church, the first step is to determine the magnitude of the doctrinal difference. 
That's the very first step. The most important category that I see in Scripture is the essential truth that is foundational to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you do not have the biblical gospel of Christ correct, you don't have a church. So you might as well not even be there. You're wasting your time and your money. If you don't have the gospel right, you don't have a biblical church. And I'm including a lot of things on that. I'm talking about things like the inspiration and authority of the Bible. Because if the Bible is in there on one subject, like whether or not abortion or homosexuality are sin, or Paul was wrong on the roles of women, the Bible's wrong on that, then the Bible may also be wrong when it says Jesus is the only path to God. The Bible must be our absolute foundation for truth. End of sentence. Doctrine like the Trinity, it's not negotiable. God is one God who exists eternally as three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. To deny the Trinity is heresy. To deny the Trinity is to deny the truthfulness of the Word of Christ Himself. Doctrine like the full deity and full humanity of Christ. The substitutionary death of our Savior Jesus. The bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Non-negotiable truths. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Meaning, pack it up and go home because we might as well just sleep in on Sunday mornings. Without the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ, there's no church. I would also put, you can argue with me, but I would put the bodily return of the second coming of Christ in this category. Along with the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, plus nothing, alone. And if you understood what I just said, you just ruled out most of the churches today. Second, I see in Scripture the apostles focusing on important but non-saving truths. These issues affect how we live as Christians. The way we understand God, man, the Christian life, that are very important doctrines. But if people are wrong on these, it can still at least be a church that proclaims Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice and say, well, at least Christ was preached. Into this category, I would put things like church government, prophecy, charismatic gifts, Christians in psychology, divorce and remarriage. I certainly, as for me in my house, would want any church I was a part of to be right on these. At the very least, these matters can still be wrong and Christ can still be preached according to the biblical gospel. And then third, you have non-essential issues. What are things like this? Well, things like who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? Okay, if you want to fight about that, I'm not really interested. I think it's fascinating. It's one thing about to talk about it. It's another thing to fight about it. When does the battle of Ezekiel 38 take place? Did Christ descend, right? Did Christ descend down into hell? So what I'm telling you is when you find yourself in a different church at some point in life, determine the magnitude of the doctrinal differences. And then your first step is to hear the issue out completely. Make sure you understand what the other person is saying in a conflict before you pass judgment. Words have meaning. Let them define their words. Let them define what they're saying. Second, consider where the person is coming from. Does the person really understand the gospel? Is this a new believer in Jesus Christ who lacks teaching? Man, I wouldn't want to be having you guys listen to everything I thought was true the first year I was a Christian. 
Give new believers some grace. Or is this a person with knowledge who is promoting false doctrine to younger believers? That's a whole different matter. Be gentle with an untaught believer. But someone deliberately teaching doctrine that is false needs to be rebuked. And if that offends you, I'm sorry. You're offended with God, not me. Always remember that the scriptures are the final authority on all matters of our faith. You can and should be able to get along with other believers who have minor differences. And I give you Acts 15, 29. Gentile converts were asked to abstain from food offered idols, from blood, from things strangled, because it deeply offended the Jewish believers. And this was a small concession for the Gentiles to make. But what happens if a member of this church is in a major doctrinal error? What happens if there's some serious heresy going on? Well, then, like it or not, there are times when church discipline may be required. But the goal is always to bring a person to truth, to restore them in love. There are times when in order to protect the church and uphold the doctrine of the church of Christ, that a person who stubbornly promotes, keyword, promotes false doctrine may need to be removed. You can find this in Matthew 18, 17, Titus 3, 10. Let me give you one example. We had a member at the last church that I was pastoring that kept, and it's great having previous church experiences because I can talk about it and no one knows who I'm talking about. She kept bringing in Seventh-day Adventist materials. They are a cult. If you don't understand that, Seventh-day Adventist is a cult. It's a very dangerous teaching there. It will not lead to biblical truth. It's not a biblical church. This lady kept putting it out for others in the church. And it wasn't just their catalogs. It was pamphlets and materials that promoted their teaching, their doctrine, their way of looking at things. Now, I approached her, and thankfully, by the grace of God, she stopped, and she realized she was wrong. But let's pretend she didn't. What would have happened then? Well, she wouldn't have. That would have been a major problem, right? That would have been a big problem. And we would have had to work through the church discipline passages in Matthew 18. So in our church, this is how we will handle essential doctrine and the important doctrines of the faith, including doctrines like baptism, the sign gifts, the role of women in the church. And if a pastor, elder of the church is wrong on one of these essential doctrines, if they are wrong on one of the important doctrines, they should be confronted with two or three witnesses. Because 1 Timothy 5.19 actually says that. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from, what, two or three witnesses. Now, if the pastor still will not hear the matter, then it should be taken to the church as instructed in Matthew 18. And they should then, if they won't still hear it, if the pastor elder won't hear it at that point, they should either be fired or they should resign. End of story. But if you, Christian, have a minor issue with another believer, don't even come talk to me about it. If you have a minor doctrinal difference with me, I don't really have time for it. If you have a minor doctrinal difference with another believer, I don't have time for it. You don't have time for it. They probably don't have time for it. And this is where unity and love are to reign over individual preferences. Because there are issues that are not worth fighting for. There are issues that are not worthy of my time or your time. And this is where Philippians 1.27 comes in, that we are to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And again, on minor issues, Philippians 
Three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Sometimes a cranky person, a curmudgeon, Sometimes a cranky person will major on the minors because they're convinced that they are right, absolutely right, on some minor point of doctrine. And they're on a crusade to convince everybody else that they're right because they found something that in 2,000 years of church history no one's ever seen before. At some point, you probably need to tell that person to back off. Just back off. And just know in your head and in your heart that that person probably has a much deeper issue that they're dealing with. There are going to be other issues you will face in the church, I promise you. You will face issues here. You will face issues in the next church. Because I can predict this with absolute certainty, not because I'm so smart, but that if you're involved in a local church, you will have a conflict with another person. It's like the pastor who got a phone call from the church missions team. Phone call said, bad news, pastor, our church is divided over whether to call the church plant First United Church or United First Church. We saw fights here about colors of paint. Some of the things people fight about is ridiculous. You will face problems in the church. You will face conflict in the church. Get used to that idea that you'll face it. The person may wrong you intentionally or it may be unintentional. They may wrong someone you care about, or you might wrong another person. And if you don't learn to deal with conflict, you will not do well as a Christian. If you don't learn to deal with conflict, you're not going to do well in the church of Jesus Christ. But this love doesn't come automatically. It's not like we are just born again, all of a sudden we have this perfect ability to handle conflict. Keep in mind, in every conflict, it's an opportunity to learn more about Jesus Christ. Because Christ lived in constant conflict, constantly. And he loved the people who mistreated him. I mean, think about our Savior for just a second. People lied about him. People gossiped about him. They betrayed him. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel mistreated. Maybe you feel unloved or betrayed. Use that, Christian to draw nearer to Jesus Christ. So suppose someone in the church deliberately wrongs you. It could be anything. It could be anything from gossip all the way to adultery. Remember that it's not always easy to know when someone else does something, whether it's intentional or not. Could be an oversight. People make mistakes. Could be an immature believer. But if you're pretty certain that it was intentional, if you're looking at something that somebody did to you and you're pretty certain that it was intentional in your life, the first step is look to Jesus Christ. Now, I know that sounds obvious, but it's not. It's not obvious. It's easy to miss this one in the heat of the moment. Second, look to the glory of Christ. Why do I say that? Because that's your goal in resolving the conflict. You set that as your goal in resolving any conflict, the glory of Christ. Third, you look to the cross as the basis for forgiveness and reconciliation. Because isn't that what we just saw in Ephesians 4.32? Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. All believers are one body in Christ. I had this thought the other day. I was thinking about this, and that means if someone hurts you and you do something against them, you know what that means? You're hurting yourself. 
If you intentionally hurt another believer in Christ, you're hurting yourself because we are one body in Jesus Christ. And it's even worse. You're hurting Christ because he's the head of the body. Your purpose is never to get even or to tear the other person down to prove you are right. It is to build up the church, build up the other person in Jesus Christ. And right after our verses in Ephesians 4, I know this is going to be mind-shattering truth, but comes Ephesians 5. It says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and what? Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given us himself for us. Love seeks the highest good of the one that we love. Now, sometimes that means correcting people. Sometimes it means pointing out a blind spot that hurts people. That's why they call it a blind spot, because you can't see it. Build up the other person in Jesus Christ. And always remember the sovereignty of God who allowed this trial in your life for his glory and your good. But also, Christian, for the glory and good of the person who wronged you. Look out for their good, too. Consider Joseph, if you would, in Genesis 50, when his brothers sold him into slavery. Years later, he was able to say to them this. He said, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. When you're hurt, look for God's perspective and then do a heart check on yourself. Look for ways you may have hurt the other person first. Did you offend the person in the past? Maybe it started with you. Maybe you never made it right with them first. Doesn't excuse their sin, but it sure changes the math equation a bit. Because perhaps you need to start with yourself and asking forgiveness of the other person. Check for bitterness on your part. Check for gossip on your part. Because when someone offends you, it's easy to go to others and build your case. And it always starts like this. I'm not here to gossip, but... (laughs) It's easy to go to other people and build the case and make yourself look like an innocent victim. Proverbs 18, 17. The first one to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes along and examines him, there is time to get a counsel from a mature believer, to get some counsel from someone else. That doesn't excuse gossip. Check to see what God is trying to teach you through the conflict. Every conflict that you face in your life is another opportunity to grow in Jesus Christ. But after this, then you go to the person in a spirit of gentleness, seeking to be reconciled in the body of Christ. Romans 14, 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which may edify one another. Put that on your dashboard on Sunday mornings when you drive to church. Look for peace. Look to edify one another. If I ever hear somebody say they didn't get anything out of this church, I'm going to tell you that you have the wrong focus. Because then you're not coming to worship, you're not coming to study, and you're not looking to edify the other people that are here. That's why you're here. If you are aware of a strain in your relationship, you are a responsible Christian to pursue peace and pursue reconciliation. Pray before you do this, though. Pray first. Pray for the right timing. Pray for yourself so that you're gracious. Ask God to help you be gracious. Pray for the other person in love. Begin by asking questions to make sure you understand their perspective. 
You're not there to be right. You're there to glorify God, to help your brother or sister in Christ grow. Give the person the opportunity to change without backing them up into a corner. Don't exaggerate to win your point. You always do this. Or you never do this. You're probably not being truthful. And if you say you're fine and you're not, again, not being truthful, right? I love the chuckles because you're living like I'm living. Joseph didn't minimize the sin of his brothers. Think on that. He didn't minimize the sin of his brothers. He told them in Genesis 50, even though he had forgiven them, he said to them, you meant this for evil. And they did. They absolutely did. And then if people insult you, guys, get used to that. It happens to me every week. If people insult you or blame you, follow 1 Peter 3, 9 that says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. And if the person won't hear you, then according to Matthew 18, you may need to take the the matter to another brother or a sister and take them with you. And if it's a serious offense and they still won't hear you, it may need to go to the pastors of the church and then they may need to bring it to the church. Now, the other issue we need to cover is if there are legal matters. If it's a civil matter and the person won't hear you, then you need to go to the leadership of the church. Paul actually rebuked the church of Corinth and he said this. I I don't like these verses. These verses have cost me a lot of money. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure. You think I'm blunt. Paul was blunt. It's an utter failure for you that you go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. On two occasions now, Angie and I have followed this. It has cost us thousands of dollars. Thousands. But afterward, even when I was wronged, God blessed me more than I could have ever imagined. See, I trust God for the outcome. I've learned to. I had to learn in a hard way, but I've learned to trust God. Be more concerned about your witness for Christ than you are about a few dollars. Honestly, even if it's a thousand, two thousand, does that really matter at the end of the day? Ask yourself if going to court against another believer in Jesus Christ will glorify God. Now, I do not take this as blanket commands that you have to just be a fool For anyone who comes along and says, hey, today I follow Jesus, and then I'm going to let you take advantage of me. I don't think that's the intention. Businessmen especially. Someone could repeatedly take advantage of a business and then half-heartedly just raise the Jesus flag and claim Jesus real quick. That's not what Paul's referring to. Because a man needs to make sure he takes care of his family and provides and protects his livelihood. But believers shouldn't be in court before the lost. Let me say that again. Believers should not be in court before the loss. Now, if there's a criminal offense, that's different. That changes everything because Romans 13 is absolutely clear about our responsibility to submit to the government as long as they don't ask us to disobey Jesus Christ. And if the government asks us to disobey Jesus Christ, all bets are off. Just for example, if someone molests a child, I'm not going to waste any time at all. They need to be brought to justice to protect other children. 
Because forgiving and loving a criminal does not mean that you should not report them to authorities. This is the government's God-given role. This is something we actually want them to do to punish the wicked. A number of years ago, a church member named John, this is a true story, he knocked on his pastor's door and asked if he could talk with him. The pastor invited him in, and John took a seat, and he began his story. And John said, Pastor, do you remember hearing about the death at the steel plant this week? And the pastor said, yeah, I heard about that. That was a, a terrible, terrible tragedy. And John went on and said, well, I was, I was there, and Robert was working when there was an accident, and the burning hot metal actually spilled all over him. And Robert began to holler. And after a minute or so, Robert began to cry and ask out loud, someone, please tell me how to be saved. Someone, please tell me how to be a Christian. Apparently, someone had witnessed him to him in the past, but he hadn't fully understood how to be saved. And so Robert started crying out. I'm going to die soon. I know that. But please, won't someone tell me how to be saved? Won't somebody please tell me how to get to heaven? And then after John sat there and cried a little bit, he told the pastor, I stood there with the rest of the men at the plant and watched him die without saying a single word. Pastor was confused by this and said, John, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you tell this man how to be saved? You're a faithful church member. You're a leader in the church. Why didn't you step up and say something? Why didn't you tell this man how to be saved? And with sadness in his eyes, John just said, because I have not lived that kind of life in front of the men at work. I haven't lived the Christian life in front of those men. And so when I was needed the most, the life that I do live in front of those men forced me to close my mouth on the gospel of Jesus Christ when that man needed the truth about salvation the most. I want to ask you this. Is that any worse? Or does this cause any more damage? than when Christians fight, churches split. I'm asking you, Christian, to consider how we're living today. Our testimony can be destroyed any number of ways. It does not take much. Crude jokes, lies, gossip, greed, anger, boom, 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 boom. Then the world shuts us off. But one of the greatest threats to this church is not out there. It's in here. It's how we handle conflict. And it grieves our God if we don't get this right. You guys know there are plenty of churches in the area that have had their witness for Christ destroyed because of conflict. So to keep our effectiveness, to keep the unity Christ intends for us to have here, it means we need to learn to resolve conflict for the sake of the gospel. So when conflict comes here, because it will, we will follow the scriptures. We will follow the word of God. You, Christian, are responsible for this. We all are responsible for this. And I wish I could tell you that resolution to conflict would come every time, but it won't. Because Paul says this in Romans. He says in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, very key words, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes peace is not possible. Then pray for those who wronged you, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said. He said, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. And then he said, his face 
that until now may have been strange and intolerable to me, that's blunt, (laughs) intolerable to me, is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died. The face of a forgiven sinner. This is a happy discovery for the Christians who begin to pray for others. Pray for those that trouble you, and then move on, Christian, with serving Jesus Christ. But for the sake of the gospel, I am asking you, please, please do all you can as the body of Christ to resolve conflict in a way that honors our Lord Jesus Christ and restores relationships for the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.